A lot of people say that in Silicon Valley, people celebrate failure. From my perspective, they don't. <laughs> I mean, when I failed, no one's like, great job, you failed. I think that what good <laughs> investors celebrate is rapid learning. And often you can't learn unless you fail. I mean, generally speaking, unless every single hypothesis turns out to be true, in which case you're just super lucky, some hypotheses turn out to not be true. And the question is, what did you learn from that? What change did you make so that the next time you go out there, you don't fail, you succeed? So I like to say that we don't celebrate failure, we celebrate learning. And we don't just celebrate learning, we celebrate the the kind of learning that helps us succeed. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old fashioned conversation. Season four is here. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. And this is also episode number 123 since I started this little podcast back in 2019, which is really kind of amazing. And I'm going strong and really excited for this season. In fact, I've been busy talking to all kinds of interesting people. And you're going to hear those conversations each week for pretty much the rest of this year. There are entrepreneurs and CEOs like today's guest, Jeff Mangiancalda, who's the CEO of Coursera, and I'll say a bit more about him in a moment. I've got some athletes, Olympic gold medalist Hannah Kearney, Dr. Lucy Gilbert, one of, believe it or not, seven sisters, all physicians, who has, in her case, Dr. Lucy Gilbert, dedicated really much of her professional career to early detection of ovarian cancer and is now, as we speak, literally zeroing in on an approach that could completely change the trajectory of this cancer and enable much earlier treatment. I've got episodes with several fascinating professors who are doing research that are just topics I just found so interesting to learn about and I wanted to share with you. There's uh, Elizabeth Margulies, who is a Princeton professor who studies how people process music. And she could explain why some songs get in our heads and others don't, why some songs are never forgotten and how we think about music and why we enjoy music. Continuing my interest this season, in bringing major voices to the Sidcast on gender issues. You'll hear from Shelly Zalis, the entrepreneur who founded the Female Quotient, Christy Wallace, the CEO of Elevate, who is one of the largest networking organizations focused on women, Christine Reardon, who is the president of Adelphi University and a leading voice on leadership and women's leadership as well, and a bunch of other people as well. Another episode coming up pretty early on, Jay Rosenzweig, one of the most interesting people I ever talked to. He's an executive search firm founder, an investor and board member in dozens of startups. He's the creator of an annual report about women in leadership in top Canadian companies, a musician, and the head of a foundation dedicated to human rights. Pretty amazing and a great conversation with him. And this season, I'm even talking to some students, undergraduate students, other Gen Zers who are out to change the world with absolutely awesome aspirations that will get all of our attention. We start season four with my conversation with the CEO of Coursera, Jeff Mangiancalda. What is Coursera? Do you know about that? It's pretty big. They have over 100 million learners and have worked with over 7,000 different institutions serving up high quality learning content, often created by some of the world's top universities and some industry educators and some independent speakers and learners as well. I got involved with them because Dartmouth College and Coursera have started a little partnership, and I was asked to create the first set of courses for Coursera for their global audience. It's called a specialization, a series of four courses. Students will get a certificate when they go through those courses. And so I had a real firsthand view on what they do, why it's important, and actually how to do it myself. It was really interesting. I guess I was surprised by how much work it was for me. 119 videos, believe it or not, that I created from scratch, over 60 application exercises, tools and methods that I created so that people taking my courses or any one of my courses would be able to apply the knowledge, apply the ideas, which for me has always been the litmus test for any executive education, any kind of practical education, any managerial training as well. Can you use these ideas? Can you apply them? Can they help you get better? Can they help you become a better person, a better leader, a better manager, more effective? 
So I created these application exercises. And it's kind of funny because so many online courses, you know, they have these quizzes, a bunch of multiple choice questions. And I guess that's fine for some topics, but it cannot possibly be the right way to assess whether people are really learning and understanding the types of things that I do and I teach around becoming more effective, but understanding mistakes and how to avoid mistakes, how to make better decisions, actually how to think about developing talent and some of the work on super bosses as well. Jeff Mangiancalda, he joined Coursera as CEO in June of 2017. This is really his second run as a CEO. He previously served for 18 years as the founding CEO at a company called Financial Engines. The company was co-founded by economist and Nobel Prize winner William Sharp. Financial Engines grew rapidly a long two-decade cycle with Jeff as the CEO, providing high-quality online investment advice that now has helped millions of people save and prepare for retirement. Jeff had worked at one stage as a consultant for McKinsey, for Cornerstone Research. He's a director of Silicon Valley Bank as well. He's got an MBA from Stanford, Stanford's Graduate School of Business, and a bachelor's degree in economics and English from Stanford University as well. Jeff is a uh, lifelong learner. Education is central to his life and how he thinks about things. And in fact, after his first CEO gig at Financial Engines, the company went public and he retired and he was traveling the world and doing all sorts of interesting things. And this opportunity to come back in 2017 to Coursera and take it to the next level was so attractive that he pretty much came out of retirement to do that. And he's still young. He's still energetic. I really enjoyed talking to him. You can just see him. You know what I mean? You can just see the energy that he brings to his job and the passion that he brings to his job at Coursera, trying to bring education and learning to the world in a bunch of new ways. So obviously, it's something that attracted me. I have my firsthand interest and participation through my own Coursera courses in the specialization that's, by the way, called strategic leadership, which you can look up and you can take. And I think you can watch a bunch of the videos without paying anything and just get into it if you want to get into it. So that specialization is called strategic leadership. And you'll find that in Coursera and in our course notes as well. Without any further ado, let me welcome in Jeff Mangiacalda and have a great conversation with him all about learning, the future of learning, his career, his life, and what it's like to become CEO of a company that is changing a lot of the rules about online education. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Jeff Mangiancalda. Hello, Jeff. Sid, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. I am thrilled to have you as my guest today, particularly because you are the CEO of Coursera, and I have just completed, as in created, four courses that make up a specialization for Coursera, which was a major project and kind of a culmination, frankly, of a lot of things that I've done over the years. So Thank you for that opportunity. And I'm pretty psyched about how it's turned out and what the potential is for it. Oh, I took a look at it. It looks really good. I mean, as a business person who's been a CEO for 25 years, I'm going to take that specialization and I would love to hire people who've also answered the kinds of questions that you put in that specialization. So I think it looks like a really fantastic piece of work. Thank you. And it certainly informs some of what I talk about in the podcast and elsewhere. So let's set the scene. For people who don't know what Coursera is, and I'll tell you the truth, I was surprised. They asked me, what are you up to? And I say various things. And one of the coolest things I'm doing is they set of courses for Coursera. And I get a blank look from some people. And I thought everybody knew Coursera. There's 100 million people that are learners in Coursera. But it turns out that's not the case. So what is Coursera? What's the deal? Coursera is an online learning platform that was created by a couple of Stanford professors 10 years ago. In fact, that's just our 10-year anniversary today. They teach computer science, the Daphne Kohler thing. They had some very popular courses in data science and computer science. They put them on the internet in about 2012, and they were stunned when lots of people around the world started coming to see these Stanford lectures talk about this new thing called machine learning. And they thought, hey, you know, we should create a company. So they teamed up and collaborated, Andrew and Daphne, Then Stanford kind of got into it and then Penn joined and then Michigan joined and Yale joined. Dartmouth has joined and now there's 175 universities around the world, 75 industry partners. This is Google and Microsoft and Facebook and others. And they have authored together over 5,000 courses, including your specialization, which we're very excited about. And we make these available to, as you said, over 100 million people. And we also now offer these courses to 6,000 institutions, over 3,000 businesses turn to Coursera to have you and other experts online courses be available to upskill and reskill their employees. 
governments use Coursera for government to upskill their citizens. And now increasingly, academic institutions all around the world are using courses on Coursera to help their students get access to online learning. So really, it's grown into a pretty big ecosystem, but basically all online courses delivered by brand name institutions and leading experts in their fields. I mean, that's really even bigger than I realized in terms of the ecosystem and all the partners that you work with and no doubt expanding. I wonder whether at some point and whether you think this is the case even today, even with all these partners, that Coursera is really a disruptor in higher ed because it's expensive to go to a university, to go to Dartmouth and go to almost any other university, really expensive. And it's not nearly as expensive to take a Coursera course or a whole series of courses. And that is almost a definition of a disruption, right? In many industries where the entire kind of cost curve has just been blown up and changed dramatically. So how do you look at that? I think to your point, you say, well, what's a disruptor? You could call Coursera a rapid change enabler. (laughs) I mean, in the sense that we are certainly (laughs) facilitating a very different and more accessible way of learning than only being able to go to a four-year on-campus program. The reason I kind of think of us a little bit more as an enabler is what we really care about is delivering on Daphne and Andrew's original mission, which is to bring high quality education to everybody in the world. Even if you can't get yourself to a university, even if you don't have a lot of money, if you've got a broadband connection and basic literacy and numeracy skills, you should have access to really good leading thinkers. What's happening in the world is because of technology and globalization, Everybody is really changing the way businesses work and the way roles get performed and the important role that data play. And so employers are looking for different kinds of skills. Educators need to help people develop those kinds of skills. There's a demand for that. And clearly Coursera, working with these universities and industry partners in a digital global format, we are certainly enabling a rate of change and affordability and accessibility That's different from what we've seen in the past. So I like to think of us as an enabler since we are working with higher education, but clearly it is disrupting the status quo. I think the ability to get higher access at lower cost to really high quality learning is happening quickly. I like that framing around enabling. I think it's true. It takes a little of the edge off because it is a challenge for higher ed to adapt. You look at the top schools, whether you want to call it, whether you want to say there's 20 or 50 or what have you. But there are, I mean, how many universities are there? Thousands, right? Just in the U.S. I would estimate there's probably 25,000 degree granting institutions in the world, something like that. Wow, Uh, that's a bigger number than I would have anticipated. So the higher prestige schools are going to always be fine. But there's a lot that are not Clay Christensen, very famous professor from Harvard who talked about disruption and kind of coined the term almost, the innovator's dilemma, spent a lot of time looking at higher education. And he predicted years ago that there would be a tremendous shakeout. I'm sure there have been some that have stopped being universities, but I feel like most are still in business, whether you're a public university or private university. But it's got to be a really tough challenge when I was talking to someone the other day and he said, well, how would we compete? And this is someone in a small school and well, it doesn't matter where it was, but it's a small school, a public school. And how are we going to compete when we can have an MIT professor with a Nobel Prize, who's a great communicator, teach some physics class and our students, anyone could take that class. We can't possibly compete against that. It was making very nervous and I thought rightly so. (laughs) I'm sure you've gotten plenty of pushback along the way as well. Anyone who wants to change the way the world works there are people who see it, there are people that want to be part of that, but then there are people that are afraid of that and will push back. So maybe you could share a little bit about your take about all of that issue. Well, I'm not positive that this is one of the key success factors of Coursera so far in the first 10 years, but I note with interest that the first evolution of Coursera, which was these massively open online courses, that really is what radically changed the accessibility of experts like you being able to directly make your experience, your wisdom, your teaching available to many, many people. It wasn't for credit and it didn't really come from the institutions. I would say mostly it was individual professors acting as entrepreneurs on their own, pretty much. They didn't have to go get faculty governance votes and things to launch a new degree. They said, I teach certain things that I want more people to access. And so the fact that Coursera came out of universities, but it was really the entrepreneurship 
of professors, not so much the entrepreneurship and risk-taking of the institutions, which allowed this first phase of Coursera to become so successful. Now what's happening is the institutions are starting to put fully online degrees on Coursera. We have about 40 degrees now that are fully accredited bachelor's and master's degrees. But the first instance of this really was from the professors. And so there is some resistance and friction in terms of how fast universities are changing. But I have been impressed by some of the leading thinkers out there who are professors who moved quickly in the early stages and did really facilitate this new kind of open access to learning that I think would have been hard for the institutions to actually do. And you asked about shakeups. I think there was generally a greater prediction of universities and academic institutions going out of business than what we've actually seen. Mm -hmm. But it's too early to tell for sure how that's really going to shake out. I do think that it's important as there's more competitive forces for any institution, including academic institutions, to ask what value do we add to our customers and society? And how do we make sure that we're just doing that distinctively well? Right. It's something I've thought quite a bit about and lots of others have as well, of course. And any organization has to be granted from various stakeholders the right to exist. And that's by people buying your product. That's by people willing to work for you. That's people being part of your general ecosystem. And universities are not any different. And so the value proposition and all those nice things we talk about in business apply 100% to higher ed to any school, really, but certain universities. I think one of the biggest differentiators for universities, and it's not one that I think is a particularly, is one that the university community should be proud of in a way, to be honest, but it is the accreditation capability. Universities put that stamp on that says X university, and that has legitimacy. And that's very difficult to replicate elsewhere. I mean, Coursera can do that if you created your own, you're partnering, so it's a little bit different scenario. But any online organization that's offering online courses could try to do that. I think Google has done various certifications as well. Maybe LinkedIn has, I'm not sure. But that's not the strongest differentiation. So I've always been on kind of a mini campaign talking to whoever I can about this. I gave a talk to the deans of business schools around the world on this topic. And it's just critical when people are in person together. It's actually not that different than as we think about working from home and distributed workforce, which we'll talk about as well. And so if you're in person, there's got to be something more. It cannot just replicate the online educational experience. It's got to be, it's almost like the music business, right? It's not streaming a song. I mean, performance is not meant to be a pejorative word for an educator, but it's got to be an experience in the classroom. Sid, I think you absolutely nailed it. In terms of those institutions, particularly academic institutions that we see most responsible to the needs that's happening in the world. I do think you could draw a connection between certain academic institutions that are more insulated from market forces. And there are other Mm -hmm. academic institutions like private universities, maybe less selective universities that are less insulated from market forces. What you find is those institutions most subjected to market forces are the ones that are the fastest to embrace change. So I think it's not a homogenous set of universities. Also, what we're seeing too globally, universities in Southeast Asia are moving very rapidly towards adopting more of the online. In Europe, we're seeing the slowest adoption. U.S. kind of following Europe in terms of generally being on the laggard side rather than the disruptor side. But a lot of it really does have to do with sort of how much subject to market forces are you. And then your point around experiences, I think, is spot on. Learning from how we work is going to be very instructive, not identical, but very instructive to how we learn in person versus online. And my thought is it's also similar. Everybody who works in person will also be online. You'll be in the office and doing Zoom with people in other offices, but you will certainly be online when you're in the office, just as every learner on campus will also be online. It's not like you're ever going to go to a day where you're not doing online learning. But I think the big difference for both of those is there will now be a lot of people who are working who don't go into an office and there'll be many people taking university courses and full degree programs who don't step foot on campus. And why would someone pay money to go on campus? For the experience. I mean, I think you are spot on. If you want people to pay the money, often forfeit their income, sometimes move their families. Mm -hmm. It has to be worth it. And I think it is the experience of being on campus that has to be heightened to be far better than what you could get online, because increasingly you can get these degrees online, even from the top schools. Yeah. And I think that puts an onus on universities and an onus on faculty to up our game. And I think it's a fair challenge. It's the right challenge. You mentioned Asia. So Coursera has learners all over the world. Mm -hmm. Are they mostly U.S. or are they mostly global? What's the general breakdown? 80% of the registered learners are outside of the U.S. So 80, yeah. 80%. A disproportionate wow. amount of the revenue comes from U.S. learners, but the terms of overall global base of learners, mm-hmm. it's substantially non-U.S. Isn't that interesting? 
Maybe it's not that surprising in a way. I used to write a column for the BBC International, BBC Global, and they would give me the data on where the downloads were coming from. And I had so many readers in China, more than in the U.S., even though that's where I am. And most of my examples were U.S. or European examples. There's one thing that I think is even today recognized in many parts of the world is for management education, at least for that slice. America is still the place you want to go maybe for education in general, because, you know, the higher education system in the U.S. has always been a gigantic differentiator, has been the engine of economic growth in many ways. If you think about where you were in Stanford and the environment that existed then when you were there, Mm -hmm. maybe a couple of decades ago, 25 years ago, and today, which I think is like an outer space now, is the definition of this hyper ecosystem. The word ecosystem, not even a good enough word to describe what goes on. And MIT is that way, Harvard's that way, Dartmouth's a little smaller, but also that way. That's kind of where the action is. I had some more things I wanted to ask you about Coursera yeah. before we kind of talk about your career, how you got to the seat in the first place, which is a very interesting story as well. Who would you say, other than higher ed universities, are your major competitors? Well, it's interesting. Higher ed universities are big suppliers. So we wouldn't exist. Literally, we'd have no courses if it weren't for people like you. So the universities are definitely our suppliers of both open content and degrees. And also with Coursera for Campus, we are selling courses from some universities to other universities. So universities are both suppliers and their customers. I mean, to some degree, they're competitors in the sense that instead of coming to Coursera to learn, you could go to a physical campus. But honestly, the number of people getting on-campus programs, I think, is very small compared to the number of people that want to get access to the learning. So I think of universities more as partners and customers. But there are other customers mostly those doing online types of programs. And there's a question like, well, what do you think about a competitor? I think of usually a competitor is someone who meets a need that my customers or my prospective customers otherwise might have come to me to meet their needs. Mm -hmm. And so I think, okay, well, that would be other online ed tech folks. That would be these online program managers that do online degrees like to you. They are other open course providers. This would be Udemy is a recent ed tech company that went public here in the U.S. There is an ed tech company in India called Upgrad. There are many of these types of companies around the world. LinkedIn has something called LinkedIn Learning. And so they're kind of integrating learning with that recruitment talent service that they offer to employers. So there's a number of ed tech players that I would think of as competitors. It's interesting about LinkedIn. I guess they had bought, is it Lydia or some name like that? That was a company that was offering courses. It's just a really dynamic area. I want to ask you one quick thing that you just said at the beginning of your remark now in response to this last question, which is that you help sell courses or programs from one university to another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How does that work? That's really interesting. It's a lot like textbooks. Courses are available on Coursera.org for any individual that wants to come. And you can watch the videos for free, but you have to pay to get the assessments and the certificates. Pretend that those courses are like interactive digital textbooks. Those are also licensed to businesses to upskill and reskill their employees. And that's on a seat license basis. Well, we do the same thing with any academic institution. So if a university in Bangladesh wants to have a more cutting edge curriculum in blockchain or cryptocurrency, internet of things or data science, and they don't have faculty to do it, they can essentially license content from other universities, you know, on Coursera and make that available typically for credit for their students towards their degree. So you can take a course from a great professor at Dartmouth. It doesn't mean you get a degree from Dartmouth, but you can still get access to that kind of high quality learning, especially in cutting edge topics. It's actually a really exciting way to think about leveraging one's learning, one's ability to teach. It was locked up, really, for a long time, wasn't it? Yeah. The exclusive audience, in terms of students, the exclusive audience of great teachers was the people sitting in the classroom. God, it doesn't have to be that way. There's a much bigger audience that wants access to those types of insights. And there's lots of people like me that want to do that. I think about my experience at Dharma. I had such wonderful, smart, capable students. But there have been in all these years, maybe 10,000 in total. Mm -hmm. I'm anticipating more than 10,000 are going to take the Coursera courses and the specialization, which is like in one year, Yeah, which is going to be kind of amazing. Yeah. We often hear professors on Coursera say that there are more students learning from them on Coursera than in their whole career of teaching. And like you said, it usually happens very quickly, depending on the popularity of the course. How did you end up becoming CEO of Coursera? You didn't need the job. You had an earlier, very successful run as a CEO. And I think I was reading you were on a 
long vacation. I don't know if that's <laughs> the right word. Traveling the world. It's not a vacation if you're not working. So it's traveling the world and spending a ton of time with your family. And I guess you have three kids or mm-hmm. daughters. I have one daughter, so we can relate that way. But then you took this job and it's not a small job because you had an IPO. And every CEO job is not small, but this is IPO and this is a booming and growing and complex business. Why'd you do it? Why'd you get back in the game like this? So the first company, I was very lucky, as you kind of alluded to, I was in the right place at the right time. Being at Stanford and graduated as an undergrad in 1991, mm-hmm. I mean, Netscape hadn't even gone public. Probably a lot of your audience won't even know who Netscape is. But literally, I was in Silicon Valley, graduated with an English and economics degree. There was no data science. I took statistics. It was called statistics. In economics, mm. I learned econometrics, which is regression analysis. But the last, like the early stages, there's no machine learning, but there's a lot of good applied statistics. Anyway, I was working in Menlo Park, went back to the business school at Stanford, 95 and 96, which was just when the consumer internet was starting to take off. So I was definitely in the right place at the right time. I'd planned to work for McKinsey. I worked there between my two years as a summer associate. And then a professor at Stanford, Bill Sharp, who's a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and one of his colleagues, Joe Grunfest, who's at the law school, they said, hey, we want to do a fintech company to use the internet to help people with their 401k plans. They said, would you write a business plan? I was like, yeah, I'd love to try that. So I got the chance to start something as the first employee. Now, it ended up being pretty successful, but honestly, I didn't know what I was doing. I worked for 18 years, five different business models, and went through a series A, B, C, D, E, F. Finally did an IPO. Wow. It was a long, long, and I made so many mistakes and it took me too long to figure things out. But finally, we kind of cracked the code on product market fit. It was a certain type of program that turns out customers really wanted. And so that became pretty successful, was a CEO as a public company for five years. And then my wife, who I've been married to for 31 years, she said, Jeff, we never had our newlywed. We got married when I was 22 and our daughter was born when I was 22. She's now 30. So she said, we never really got to do what newlyweds do. Stop this job thing and let's go travel. So we traveled around the world. We were going to do it for three years. And then to your question, how'd the job come along? I know a recruiter that I had used many years ago who I'd stayed in touch with and he had been retained to do a CEO search for Coursera. He contacted me. I had promised Anne, my wife, that I wouldn't go and do this, but I always wanted to be a teacher. And I always believed that pretty much throughout human history, those cultures and societies that had the best access to education, the ability to share knowledge and learning, they've just flourished. And it's been a great equalizing force. And so I thought, wow, the chance to work at a company where if I could apply my time and talent to help a company succeed, and if that success brings good things to the world, that would be pretty amazing. In June, I'll be five years into the job. It's been incredible. I mean, it's way more than I ever bargained for. And so, yeah, the pandemic hit. I helped lead a Series D, a Series E, and then the pandemic, and then we went public. And now we continue to grow at pretty healthy rates. It's a very dynamic world, and it's a very dynamic business to try to figure out. Jeff, I want to go back to the origin story in a minute, but you mentioned COVID, so I'm just going to jump to it. Yeah. Do you think that COVID created a big boost for online education for a company like Coursera? Because everyone went on Zoom all of a sudden. I had to learn how to teach online, so to speak. I never did. I remember it was March 2020, of course. And I think I had from March 10th or 11th in Houston, America. That's the date when everything officially fell apart. Broadway closed. You knew that this was Armageddon or something like that. At least you hoped it wasn't, but you know what I mean. And I was scheduled to teach two weeks later, along with a bunch of other faculty members. I don't even know if I had been on Zoom. Probably I had been, but I don't remember. But I definitely never taught on. It was a crash course on how to do it. We learned how to do it. Students were very patient with us in figuring it out. And so now there's a lot of comfort with that. But my question to you is the effect of COVID on Coursera's business and online education in general. Yes, there has been a profound effect in many different dimensions. The most immediate one, as you kind of said, is people got trapped at home and many of them went online to learn. I mean, UNESCO estimates that in April of 2020, 90% of every student in the world, this is 1.6 billion students had their schools closed. Not all of them, but a lot of them went online. So we had 47 million registered learners at the beginning of 2020. During 2020, an additional 30 million came and registered and learned on Coursera. And our revenues grew 59% in 2020. So it was a massive acceleration of learning and revenues. And then the institutional, we had 30 universities using Coursera for campus. That jumped to 4,000 within seven months. It was transformative. And then another thing is it clearly affected a lot of investment and 
capital flows. And so lots of people wanted to invest in Coursera, both in the private rounds. We did the Series E and the Series F. Actually, it was really just the Series F that was during COVID. But then the stock market was very attractive. The public markets were attractive. So I think COVID also had a big effect, not just on our growth rate, but access to private capital and also access to public capital. And so we were able to go public at a very good time. And then there's a knock-on effect, which is interesting. The capital didn't just flow to Coursera. The capital flowed to many ed tech companies, which Mm -hmm. now are springing up all over the world and creating even a more dynamic and more competitive environment for traditional academic institutions. And so now we're hearing a lot of universities say, gosh, there's so much competition now from micro-credentials and ed tech players. In fact, many universities are turning to Coursera to help them compete against other ed tech players who are offering these micro-credentials. And now Coursera enables traditional academic institutions to deliver those micro-credentials that a lot of students want in a world where there's a lot more competition because of the capital flows that have been spurred by COVID. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Jeff Mangiancalda, the CEO of Coursera. And I don't usually do commercials. In fact, I don't think I've done a commercial past season one when it was just commercials for helping you live a better life. But I'm going to give you a short commercial now because I have done a course, actually a series of courses for Coursera. They just came out in April of 2022. I'm pretty excited about it because in some ways it's my life's work in four online courses. Three of the four are based on books that I've written, Why Smart Executives Fail, Think Again, which is all about decision making, and of course, Super Bosses. And the fourth course is brand new, things I've never really written about or barely spoken about. It may actually become the basis for a new book. And it's about wisdom, it's about personal leadership, it's about things that are kind of in my head right now. The thing I want to tell you about these courses, the four of them, which together make up what Coursera calls a specialization, and they actually give you a certificate for that, so that's pretty cool, is that I've recorded these original videos. There's 119 in total, which is kind of a crazy number. And in addition, I have also created these application exercises, something like 50 or 60 of them across the four courses. An application exercise is something I've invented that will enable learners to apply the ideas and the lessons that I give them that I share in the videos. I'm not a believer in, you know, these multiple choice quizzes that you sometimes see in online courses. That's not meaningful, especially for the types of things that I'm talking about. But I do think it would be these exercises, the application exercise, particularly practical and relevant for people to apply and learn from these ideas. So I just wanted to mention that you could find it just by Googling Coursera and my name, Finkelstein. The actual specialization is called Strategic Leadership, Impact, Change and Decision Making. And we'll have something in the show notes about that as well hope you'll take a look. Back to our conversation with Jeff. The term micro-credential is a new modern term, isn't it? Yeah. So just continuing on the things that have affected the growth trajectory in recent times. So we're now in the world of the so-called great resignation. Yes. And what it really means is like the great reconsideration of our lives. When we see true disaster all around us through COVID, do we want to keep on putting our nose to the grind, so to speak? And a lot of people, a lot of people said no. And I can imagine people, when they think about redefining who they are, what their upside is, what they can do, they'd want to go get more credential. They'd want to go back to school. Has that actually happened? Have you seen an uptick in business because of that? So when we look at our profit loss statement, we've got the consumer segment, which is the revenue that we make from people coming directly to Coursera taking open courses. We have the enterprise segment, which is those institutional sales to businesses and governments and academic institutions. And then we have degrees, which is people actually enrolling in fully accredited degree programs. Depending on the type of learning product, you know, is an open course for a degree and the region of the world, we've seen different kinds of effects. So what we've seen with the great resignation at Coursera is a lot of people saying, not only am I reevaluating my life, I'm also reevaluating the kind of work I want to do and how much flexibility and pay that I want to get Mm -hmm. for it. I think that people really have been realizing pretty rapidly that there is a growing demand for good paying jobs that are usually digital jobs that are more flexible, they pay well, and they have better career paths and opportunities. When I say flexible, because of remote work, increasingly and more frequently do them online. And they're seeing that I can learn the skills to do these jobs 
without having to go back and get a degree, but I do need some kind of a credential. So there's a certain kind of product on Coursera called a professional certificate that we started with Google, but now it includes multiple certificates from Google and IBM and Facebook and Salesforce and Amazon and Intuit. And these industry players are putting together, they're about 50 to 75 hours to complete a four course series that teaches someone with no college degree or background in the field, the skills to do an entry-level digital job that often pays better and can be done more flexibly than a lot of the frontline jobs in retail and other sectors. So we're seeing a lot more people come to Coursera for these professional certificates and we're building out a much bigger portfolio for jobs in cybersecurity, data science, computer science, IT, digital marketing, project management, bookkeeping. There's a lot of good jobs out there that are now available, but you need to get reskilled and these professional certificates have really benefited. In the U.S., we've seen a substitution. This often has happened historically where a strong labor market often means that many people that otherwise would have gone for a college degree say, I'm going to defer that college degree. I'm going to go into the labor market right now. So we see enrollments in community colleges down. Bachelor's degrees are down. Master's degrees are still, you know, they're more professional. They're still up a bit. But I think that in the U.S., the strong labor market has had a tougher impact on degrees, even as they've spurred interest in these industry Mm -hmm. professional certificates. Yeah. And these certificates are very, very directed towards a specific type of job. That's right. That's really interesting because you know how long people have been talking about the need to retrain people and that the average person starting their career today might have four or five different, not just jobs, but almost careers or micro careers or what have you. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people that are doing jobs that are already getting competed away or the technology, I mean, AI in particular, it's taking away some of those jobs. So the concern for a long time was, well, we've got to retrain them. And it sounds like the market is solving that. Solving is too strong a word, maybe too optimistic, but helping address that. Coursera's of the world that are creating these, and really it's a distribution channel uh, in partnership with Google and Amazon and everyone else. That's pretty exciting because that was considered a big roadblock by a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, Sid, what's also, I think, really fascinating, it's not happening everywhere equally, but I'd say in the first seven years of Coursera, universities created content that we brought to industry. Now what's starting to happen, industry is creating content that we're bringing to universities. So a lot of the most valuable content that academic institutions are licensing on Coursera, clearly there are the business courses from professors like you at universities like Dartmouth, but they're also very interested. If you go in Peru, if you go in Kazakhstan, if you go through Europe, many universities are actually licensing Coursera for campus in order to get a hold of these professional certificates created by our industry partners so that their students who are pursuing a degree in whatever, history or psychology or any liberal arts kind of discipline can also get a professional certificate. It's not either or. They get a bachelor's degree from a liberal arts college, but they also, they, the student, when they graduate, have a professional certificate that means they know how to do digital marketing or they know how to do sales operations, for instance. I wonder whether U.S. schools are big, let's call it liberal arts U.S. schools are big buyers of that type of product so far, because just one little data point is a few years ago at Dartmouth, at business school, Tuck, a couple of my colleagues created an accounting course online. That's fantastic. Great teachers, really well done. We're partnering with schools like Bowdoin and others to offer a class that they never had before and they never will because they're pure liberal arts schools. And frankly, there was a lot of resistance from those liberal arts schools and those faculty Because first of all, you're taking away tuition revenue, which implies that's enough in and of itself. But you're also taking away potentially some staffing or the ability to hire more people. And then there's a little bit of the, well, I don't know whether it's snobbish or narrow-minded or what have you. You're smiling, so you know what I mean. I'm a big proponent of liberal arts, but to look down your nose at something that's practical. Yeah. So how is it going now in this iteration when Coursera is in the game and as opposed to our little place having one course dealing with some liberal arts schools? It really varies by school and by region. But here's what we found. There's kind of three ways that academic institutions who use Coursera for campus typically use it. The easiest is basically going to our professional certificates and just adding them in the Career Services Center. We don't know what happens in the Career Services Center. We don't really <laughs> care. If the students want to get trained up for jobs, that's you know part of what you have to do here. That really doesn't concern me much. That's the easiest way to sort of just step into the white space by working with career services. There's the next type of integration, which often is for credit, which I will call standalone electives. A program, oftentimes it's a business school that doesn't have computer science courses or an engineering school 
that doesn't have business courses or a, either of those schools that doesn't have data science courses or a school that has those courses, but they don't have blockchain or they don't have an emerging sort of discipline. And the faculty and the dean are like, gosh, you know, our program would be better if we offered an elective in Internet of Things, but we don't have anyone to do that. Let's just license that, offer it as a standalone independent study elective, but it's still kind of a white space in the standalone elective piece. What's really hard, and we just don't see this, is a university saying, hey, there's a professor that already teaches class A, and we're going to replace that professor with a class on Coursera for class A. We just never see it. I've never seen that happen. I don't know if and when it ever will happen, but we have to make sure as an entrepreneur, like you'll never get market traction if you're trying to displace an incumbent. You're just swimming too far up the stream. So you've got to find ways to participate in kind of the whole product solution without really getting shut down by incumbent forces that maybe don't want that solution to be made available. And that's especially true in a world where, as you said earlier, some universities don't have a lot of market pressure. They're insulated, so they can do that. Right. Really interesting. Did you want to add something on that? I think part of entrepreneurship is trying to figure out how do you make a market? It's almost never easy enough to say, oh, build a better product and that's going to win. No, even if there's something that the student wants, even if it's less expensive, even if it might be higher quality, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a successful business. And so I have become over my 25 years as a CEO, like just very pragmatic about saying, where can we meet needs where in that partnership ecosystem and the go-to-market distribution, where you have enough allies and few enough sort of opposing forces where you can actually solve a problem and help some people out. And so I try to be just very practical about it. Speaking about that and more generally your style, Coursera is still an entrepreneurial company, would you say? I like to think so. And for a couple of reasons, I mean, we told Wall Street in our last report, our last earnings call that in 2022, we'll do more than 500 million of revenue. So it's definitely not a brand new startup. Mm-hmm. But if one thinks of a startup and one thinks of like, what does that mean to be a startup or to be an entrepreneurial organization? Mm-hmm. My view of it is how much more work in finding product market fit does your company need to do to grow 30% or more for the next three to five years. If you completely have it on rails and you're like, look, we know who our customer is. We know what their problem is. We know what the solution is. We know how to sell it. We know how to position against our competitors. We know how to price it. Our channels are all working. Acquisition costs in order. Supply chain is good. Then fine, you're not that entrepreneurial. But what entrepreneurial to me means is you haven't totally cracked the code on product market fit. And that means you need to be creating clear hypotheses, testing those hypotheses rapidly. When you get some answer, iterating and changing and nailing that solution, even as you're scaling it. And so to the extent that we're still very much trying to find product market fit and very much trying to go through this iterative learning process of best meeting needs of customers, we're certainly entrepreneurial. Do you think because you're in the business of learning and education that that has become part of the culture of how you operate? Because you used some words just now that made me think about this as a learning organization. I mean, if Coursera doesn't operate in terms of leadership and management as a learning organization, then we're all going to throw our hands up in the air. So you got to tell us yes. But (laughs) I'm interested in how the product that you create or products you create and the services you provide, how that leads over into how you run your business, not just you yourself, but the entire organization, really. I've learned over my life before I got to Coursera, but it's certainly been reinforced at Coursera. I'm a learner. I love learning. And so I love a tough problem because the fun of trying to understand the nature of the problem and understand the root causes or the opportunity and then finding a solution, which is all about really the scientific method is having a hypothesis and testing that hypothesis in some way such that the result can be predictable and scalable. Like that's what this is about. So our first value at Coursera is learners first. You know, it's like we have to do what's right for the world to live up to the mission of Andrew and Daphne. But another one of the values among five is learn, change, and grow. And what that's about is realizing in order to grow, you must change, but you want to change intentionally in a way that will provide consistent and predictable growth. And what that's about is really learning. And so to me, it's not just learning. It's intentional learning about what customers need and how to solve their problem. And it's not just the learning piece, it's the changing piece. Once you learn it, you have to do something about it to make a real impact on your customers and on your business. So it's that combination of loving to learn and translating learning into impact that I think we've, as a company, and well before I got here, Andrew and Daphne, when they started, they infused the whole culture with that learn and then take the learning and drive impact and join, I think, as part of our culture. So one of the litmus tests for organizations that try to do what you're doing is how to deal with failure. 
Mm. And of course, there have been plenty of things in any organization, especially one that's still somewhat early days, not quite as it was because you're a public company now, but still there's a huge trajectory going on. And I know you talk about this. You must talk about this because you got to give people permission to take some risks. It's not just permission. It's what you and your colleagues do when it doesn't go right. What could you share in terms of, I don't know, best practice or worst practice, (laughs) things you're trying to avoid when it comes to managing failure in an organization where you are experimenting? You have hypotheses you're testing. Well, by definition, some of those hypotheses will not be supported. And that means some money has been spent that will not have a return. Yeah. A lot of people say that in Silicon Valley, people celebrate failure. From my perspective, they don't. (laughs) I mean, when I failed, no one says, like, great job, you failed. I think that what good (laughs) investors celebrate is rapid learning. And often you can't learn unless you fail. I mean, generally speaking, unless every single hypothesis turns out to be true, in which case you're just super lucky, some hypotheses turn out to not be true. And the question is, what did you learn from that? What change did you make so the next time you go out there, you don't fail, you succeed? So I like to say that we don't celebrate failure, we celebrate learning. And we don't just celebrate learning, we celebrate the kind of learning that helps us succeed, that actually helps us meet business goals. That's what we try to do. Now, it's tricky, though, because it's very easy for people to say, hey, if you were asking why did something happen, especially when something doesn't go well or the way you expect it, it's like, oh, that must mean you're trying to figure out who to blame. I'm not saying who, I'm saying why. Getting to the root cause of a problem is the key to solving the problem, whether that's resolving an issue in your servers or whether that's figuring out how to find product market fit. And so building a culture that understands when we say why did we not meet our goals or equally as importantly, why did we beat our goals? We just want to get a better understanding of what it takes to drive the kind of success that we want. It's not personal. It's about understanding the nature of the challenge and then finding great solutions. And so you really want to depersonalize it. So when someone says why, they're like, oh, what are you saying about me? No, that's not what we're saying. We're trying to learn. There's a great phrase that I really like. A problem well specified is half solved. That almost always goes back to the question of why. Why did this work? Why did this not work? That's a great expression, a problem well specified is half solved. I always thought that asking the right type of question is not better than coming up with the answer, but it's really close. Because if you ask a question that's not that good, the answer is going to cost you more time and energy. Sid, I think you're spot on. That's a learning mindset as well to even think like that. I'm curious about the short version of how you spend your time. I know there's no typical day. You're on the road now. Maybe you weren't for a period of time, but you certainly are again. And I'm thinking about the big categories are spending time with investors, internally with employees, and especially your senior executive team. Thinking about the talent flow as you're growing, you're hiring, I'm sure. Dealing with customers, no doubt. All of those are going to be in the top set. But what would you say would be the things you spend and spend the most time thinking about, not just the most time on the job doing? When I think about my job as a CEO, I think this is probably true for most growth company CEOs. There's four things that I do. Not just me. I think that a CEO of a Mm -hmm. growth company have to do. In my view, you have to set a good strategy. Some people find it very tricky to set a good strategy because they often think of a strategy as like a to-do list. I often say strategy is not a to-do list. There are choices that you make about where to play and how to win. What markets do you want to go after? What problems do you want to solve for people? And then what advantages can you bring to that? Helping get really clear on who is your customer and what kinds of solutions you need to bring to them is a big part of what the CEO and the exec team need to do. So we do it with process. I'm not always thinking about strategy, but I'm always talking to customers and I'm always trying to figure out, are we solving their problems better than our competitors and how can we do that better? The second big thing in addition to strategy is team. So making sure that I hire direct reports that are really talented individuals who really believe in the mission and have a track record of just learning and delivering impact individually and together collectively as a team is the big part of my job. The third thing is culture which is beyond my direct reports, how do we set an environment which is both the way we talk, we espouse to be our beliefs, but also our behaviors to reinforce things that we believe in and will make us more productive and more successful. And then the final one is just supporting the performance of the organization. And this is helping people, talking to people, et cetera, helping talk to customers, helping close deals, helping deal with potentially organizational issues. I spend very little time talking to investors. My belief after having been a public company CEO twice now is investors, they just want a good return on the money. If you build a great business with good revenue growth, 
good operating leverage and good margins and defensible competitive advantages, you'll have a valuable company and investors will be your good friends. So I don't spend much time talking with investors. The two groups I try to talk to the most are customers and employees. That's kind of where I spend most of my time. I've had some exposure to some of the members of your top team through my developing the specialization and some of the work we've done afterward. I've been really impressed. Betty Van den Bosch, Kim Callback. You have some real talent. I didn't meet anyone else, so it's not a negative towards anyone else. I didn't talk to anyone else, but those two really are impressive. Thank you. Thank you. More and more CEOs are being called on to speak up on public issues, social issues. It was never that way, but it sure is that way more and more. What's your mindset or philosophy around that? It's usually a controversial issue. And there will be some people that will like your point of view and others that will not. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to have people that are part of your ecosystem or employees or customers that are not happy with what you have to say. It's tricky. I mean, 25 years ago when I was a CEO, <laughs> just starting on Financial Engines in 1996, it wasn't this way at all. I mean, yeah. my job in the last five years at Coursera is substantially different as a leadership expectations from my job as 18 years at Financial Engines. Part of it is the company, but more of it is the times. It's tricky. And so the first thing I will say is I try to really separate Jeff from Coursera. So the CEO of Coursera to serve Coursera needs to be a certain kind of leader. Now, whether I do that or not, you know, somebody else needs to do that for the company. I try not to make things about me. I don't want this to be about Jeff. Here's what I think. I want this to be about what's good for Coursera and consistent with what Coursera is trying to accomplish in the world. So first thing I say is not about me. How can I be the best servant to the company that I can? And on that basis, I think I definitely want to be talking about all issues that pertain to our community at Coursera. So things that affect us inside, absolutely, we got to be talking about that. Things that then affect more directly our ecosystem, like, yeah, we probably need to be talking about that because that's you know, germane to our business and what we're trying to accomplish. As you get further and further away from what we are all about, I feel less inclined to be a spokesperson on those issues. But I can tell you one of the things that we did, and we did this right when I started, I realized how much expectation there is to speak out on so many things. And I got together with our global head of PR and communications and I said, I want us to build a framework that says, here is the role that we will play by principle and category. These types of things we'll talk about in this way. These types of things we won't talk about. And so we actually developed a rubric. We shared it with the company and we said, just so you know, you can expect us to talk out about these kinds of things at this level of vocalness, if you will, or at this volume. And before emergencies happen, let's get centered on the way we're going to deal with this strategically. And that framework has served us very well because it's a good guide independent of any particular issue that guides our thinking about how we participate in a conversation that people might want you to participate in and others might not want you to participate in. That is really smart. I haven't heard that. I don't know, maybe other companies are doing that, but because you're now not going to disappoint anyone because they'll know ahead of time and you could have that conversation if they're concerned about it and you could do it as thoughtfully as you can. I mean, it's always possible something unexpected happens and you just have to get out of that rubric, but I don't think there's any policy or plan that is set in stone that you can never adjust otherwise. And even there, Sid, being able to go back and remind people, these are our principles. Here's how we think about whether we speak out or not. Even if you make an exception to that or you update your principles, it gives you a nice centeredness that is not hijacked by the emotion of the moment. And I think that is increasingly important in all of our lives and in all of our businesses. Don't let the emotions shut down your prefrontal cortex and have you just be in reaction mode. We've got to continue to be thoughtful and principled and values oriented. Sometimes emotions can get in the way of that. I mean, emotions are valuable, but you got to make sure that your brain is working in a well-balanced way. There's a reason humans have survived and done so well. It's called the prefrontal <laughs> cortex. Don't let that thing be shut down all the time by emotion. And in fact, in my second course on decision-making, I talk about exactly that point. So there you have it. <laughs> love it. Love it, Sid. So we're in this kind of hybrid world, work from home, being in the office, a little bit of both, depends on the person. And one of the things I think people discovered, maybe recognized more than ever before during this time period, is what work-life balance means, is, isn't, does it ever exist? And it came up in a very basic way because, you know, you're on a Zoom call and previously you were in meetings with suits or at least the, uh, maybe not in Silicon Valley, but you dress well, it's different there, but more important, the kids are screaming in the background or you got to take care of the kid. The kids are not in school and you have a responsibility. And obviously most of that responsibility falls on the primary caregiver. And most of the time in America, that's a woman. And many women have high powered jobs and whatever type of jobs they have. So it's been very challenging. What have you seen with your own staff members with Coursera? 
employees. Is there something you did or tried to do to address that? Yeah, we certainly saw a lot. We did a lot. We're still trying to figure out how to make all this work. But Mm -hmm. before we closed the offices, early March of 2020, as you said, it was kind of clear things were shutting down and it kind of started in the Bay Area. Silicon Valley tech companies started shutting down offices for many reasons, including the fact that many of us could do our jobs from home without a lot of disruption to the business, which is one of the privileges of being a tech. We started doing that quicker. Before we shut down our offices, my head of people and I, Rich Jackwood, who had worked at eBay, he's had a long and awesome tenure in Silicon Valley. We said, you know, we're never going to be able to require our employees to come back to the office. And the reason we thought that it kind of went like this, we just kind of played it a few steps ahead. A little bit of game theory and a little bit of like first principles. We're like, okay, we know that people hate the commute. People hate commutes. And once we start working from home, people will not have to commute. So they're going to get used to that. Then you're like, okay, there might be some things that they miss, but they won't be missing the commute very much. If we try to say to people, come back to Coursera, I'm sure, and I don't know if it's going to be Facebook or Netflix or Apple or Salesforce or Twitter or, you know, name the litany of other employers in Silicon Valley, someone's going to say, you don't have to come back. We're going to let you work remotely. I said, as soon as they do that, our best employees in computer science and data science, especially, they're going to say, you want me to come back to the office? No, because I'll go work for some of these other companies who don't make me come back to the office. I'm like, God, so Rich, if we try to do this, we're going to lose our best people. Mm -hmm. So rather than us losing our best people, let's embrace a work from (laughs) anywhere policy. Let's be playing offense rather than defense. And so very quickly during the pandemic, we said to our employees, you'll never have to come back to the offices again. We will have offices. We've always believed like, yeah, social interaction is important. Offices do have a certain role to play, but we didn't want to force people to come back. And that gave a lot of clarity through multiple waves of the pandemic. People just realized I can move where I want. I can move my family. I can start in new schools. I can buy a house where it's more affordable. And it really just helped to insulate us from the uncertainties, not all the uncertainties, but a lot of the uncertainties of the pandemic. Then what we saw was especially, as you said, for women, when the kids weren't in school, it was a much bigger impact on them. So guess what? When you can move anywhere, we had a number of people, including many women, including women that report to me, move closer to their families and other social support systems to help get a little bit more support. So there was a really nice benefit of that flexibility. And then in the summer of 2020, a lot more focus on social justice, diversity of employee, better and more equal representation in the workforce. We're like, well, wait a second. We already have work from anywhere. We can build a much more diverse workforce with this new talent policy. Let's go recruit not only the best people anywhere in the world, but also a much more diverse group of people. And so we have dramatically changed the diversity and representation on Team Coursera, even as I believe we've increased the talent level because now we can recruit from anywhere in the world, not just 30 minute commute from where we are. So this has really helped us a ton and it's created, I think, a very different kind of company than we would have been if we had been only in office. That's a great example, really, of what you see. And when you said quality of people is better than ever, sometimes people have trouble understanding that. And it's kind of shocking. We saw it in the <laughs> business school. We had maybe a third of the students who were women. Mm-hmm. And then over the space of two or three years, we made a concerted effort to get as close to 50-50 as possible. I think we hit it one year. We're very close each year since. And there's people wringing their fingers and, oh, my God. But if you expand the talent pool, how is it possible? Is there an equation out there that would lead us to say it's going to reduce the quality of people if we expand the population. It's not logical and it's so simple, but yet not a lot of people, but some people are worried about it. What we have to contend to that you don't nearly so much is our strategy of working from anywhere means that more and more people won't have the in-person experience that you started with this podcast with talking about on the school side. There's something you get to experience when you come to campus. You know, there is something about coming to an office and part of people's work life is a social life and there's some energy that you get out of there's certain collaboration that are better. So what we haven't yet completely figured out, although we're making good progress, is how do we want to redeploy strategically the way that we use physical space to run our company, to attract people, to engage employees? I'll give you a little hint. We believe that the future operating model for most businesses and also most universities is going to be hybrid, where it's going to be a lot online. It'll also be in person. But we're embracing a model that says we're going to start with a default operating model, which is online, and we'll mix in in person to make it more hybrid. We're going to take our big office space, break it into smaller chunks, distribute it in more places around the world, probably in cities where there's better commute and transit to get there, also where there's more fun things to do socially. And so we're really going to reconfigure a lot of our space and the way that we use it so that there'll be more places for more people to come more easily in big cities around the world. Yeah, it's kind of like setting up pods as opposed to big offices. Exactly. 
Right. And you only need, even if there's five people that come into a small office, that could work perfectly fine. Very interesting. So how about for you personally and coming back and then with COVID and you have a family, I guess, are your kids all grown now out of the house or at least in university age? They're all grown and out of the house. I am blessed for many reasons. And I know that today the labels offer privilege and you know what? Hey, it's hard to argue with it. I'm incredibly blessed and I'm incredibly privileged and I feel really fortunate. I mean, I got this job, which is incredible. I've been married for 31 years. I have three adult daughters who are 24, 28, and 30. The dating scene is pretty tough out there, I will say that. But they're wonderful human beings. I'm so proud of them. And they're thriving and they're making the world a better place and not with a lot of ups and downs and everything that comes with living in today's times. I'm really lucky. And from a family perspective, this flexibility for all of us means that we can get together more often because we can get together and still be working without having to say, oh, I can only come and see you if it's a Friday night and I don't have to work the next day. And so we're able to spend more time together as a family and I'm able to work. Well, I'll tell you this. I was talking in the early parts of the pandemic about what life might be like for me as a CEO beyond that. My oldest daughter, Allison, who's now 30, for Christmas in 2020, she gave me a name tag, like these little old-fashioned name plates that you would put on your desk. It said, Jeff Madgen called a the nomadic CEO. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, I like the sound of that. And so now my wife and I, we love to travel. I'm in Hawaii right now. We were in London for two weeks. In the last month, I have worked in London, Munich, Atlanta, Las Vegas, San Diego, and Hawaii, and Palo Alto. And so I'm able to work from pretty much anywhere. I spend more time with customers, more time with employees. I also get to see the world. So I feel just exhilarated. <laughs> I know it's not like this for everybody at all, but there are incredible opportunities for those who have the good fortune of having the skills to do more digital jobs. But the value of having the skills to do digital jobs you know, continues to amplify the distance between the digital divide, those who have and those who have not. And so I feel like we have to redouble our efforts to give everybody the chance to learn the kinds of skills, to get the kinds of jobs that pay well and give you that kind of flexibility. What I will say is that learning and education and learning skills is the single best pathway to improving one's opportunities. Amen. I always say the best man I ever made was in staying in school and going and getting these credentials because it opened the door to all sorts of things. And I bet a lot of people would say the same thing. Investing in yourself and the people around you and the learning that takes. I have one last question for you, Jack. I'm kind of sorry to say it's one last question because it's such a fun conversation. I can keep going a lot longer, but <laughs> I won't because you got stuff to do. So it's actually interesting because you have three daughters that are in their 20s. So it's almost like you could think about giving advice to them. But I want you to imagine giving advice to yourself when you were their age or a bit younger, let's say 21 years old. If you could magically go back in time, 21-year-old Jeff finding wherever you were doing whatever you were doing and you lean over to him and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know or do or think about that you can't possibly know now because you're so young, what would it be? What would that be that bit of advice you'd give yourself? You could magically go back. My life has not been charmed in every way, but it has certainly been more charmed than most. And even like my 21-year-old self got my 23-year-old girlfriend at the time pregnant. And so we got married during my spring break <laughs> when I was still in college. And then we had a baby right after I graduated. My life has been certainly not super traditional. One of the things I love about it, I give my wife a lot of the credit for this, which is take it as it comes. Take life as it comes and just try to enjoy what you're able to do and the options available to you at the time, I think I worried too much. <laughs> and it was kind of a fear of failure. I wish I could have embraced the challenge. Everything we've been talking about is to me just, like I said, it's exhilarating. I love this stuff. But for most of my career, it's that the joy of learning and working with people, collaborating and building things has been tainted to some degree by an underlying fear of failure. I don't know. It's just an identity kind of problem. It was like staring into the abyss Maybe the abyss is what is my self-identity if I am, quote, a failure. And that really diminished my joy of the professional path that I took. And I would have given myself this advice. It's a lot easier to say than to do. But I would have said, embrace the joy of the journey and try not to worry so much of what might happen if you fail, because it's going to be okay. And whether you succeed or fail is not who you are. Even though I told myself that I couldn't actually believe it in my heart enough. And so that was kind of just a little bit of a shame because I think I would have enjoyed my career more. I enjoyed it a lot, but honestly, it was diminished by that fear of failure. Thanks for that honesty. Do you feel that way today at all? No, <laughs> not, almost not at all. Cheer to yourself. I mean, here's one of the things. And again, for any leader who is really bold, 
but already has a lot of money, already has a professional career that's been pretty well established. And I'm like, look, I'm willing to take a lot of risks. Well, it's a lot easier to take risks when you don't have as much downside financially or from your reputation and your self-identity. It's easy to take a lot of risks when you don't have a lot to lose. At least you don't feel that you have a lot to lose. If you're someone who has a much bigger risk, it's harder to be so bold. So I try, it still creeps in a little bit, but I'm in a position where it's just a lot easier to take risks and to do it for the joy of it because I'm a little bit older in my life and things have gone pretty well. Yeah, no, I completely get that. And one of the things I talk with my students about, who I guess you have two of your three daughters are exactly in that age group and one is not much younger. And then they bring this up is imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm. which is very closely related to fear of failure. And imposter syndrome is the belief that you don't deserve that seat at the table, Mm -hmm. that somehow you're not worthy of doing these and of having the success that you're having. And it's a really tough thing because so often the people that bring it up, first of all, they're mostly women and they're mostly people of color, which says something right there. But second, they're among the top students, the smartest people that I interact with, and they have it too. Yeah, Like you said just a minute ago, it could diminish not just their joy, but it could diminish their career path if they let it get to them. Yeah, And I think just giving voice to it and letting people talk about it openly is a pretty big thing. Because often you think you're the only one. So many people think they're the only one. I should write a book like that saying you're not the only one because it applies to so many things. It's like the question you're afraid to ask because you think you're the only one that doesn't get it to this fear of failure. I typically don't resonate so much with imposter syndrome because I have genuinely felt very confident. Well, like if anybody could do it, I could do it. But I think there is something that's very similar there, which has Mm -hmm. to do with identity. I do think some of the most powerful stories are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Clearly, there is something in me that is scared at the idea that maybe I'm a failure, whether I deserved it or not or whatever. Like, I do think that that is underneath the imposter syndrome. I think it's underneath this fear of failure is this sense of like, am I comfortable with who I am? Yeah, to your point, it absolutely makes it harder to be successful if you're telling yourself stories and especially, and I've not been in this category, but if you're in a category where you're telling your own self something that kind of sabotages your story about yourself and society is also reinforcing that, that's something I didn't have to deal with. That's like a double whammy. So I look at people who've been very successful who have had to work much harder to do it. And I say, that's amazing because I know it's hard even when you've got a lot of advantages. It must be doubly hard when you've got a lot of disadvantages. Well, that type of empathy and understanding, I think, goes a long way as a leader when people know that you know that, you think about that, you see that. And well, Jeff, we've covered a lot of ground and it's just been fascinating, like a mini leadership lecture (laughs) in here as well, along with learning more about Coursera and the industry and the changes that are going on and how you're an enabler more than a disruptor. I like that too. And I hope my course is a blockbuster success with you and your team. I had the greatest experience doing this because for me, it was in some ways the culmination of 30 years of research, writing, consulting, teaching in putting together these courses. And I don't think I would have done it if it wasn't for this kind of venue, and this kind of situation that arose. So thank you for that. I have no doubt it's going to be massively successful. And thank you for all the time and effort that you put into it. I mean, sharing what you have learned and what you know with the broader audience, I think is just a fantastic gift. And to do that on Coursera, we're forever grateful. So thank you. Well, it turns out it's a gift to me to be able to do that. So on that note, thank you so much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. I know we'll be in touch again. Take care. Thanks a ton, Sid. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.